from the Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce. This is In Conversation With, supported by Westcott's Chartered Accountants and Business Advisors. Presented by Stuart Alford and produced by Fresh Air Studios Plymouth. Hello there, I'm Stuart Elford, Chief Executive of Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce with another edition of our In Conversation With series of podcasts. And I'm absolutely thrilled and indeed honoured today to be joined by Mark Ormrod. Welcome, Mark. Good morning. Morning. That's very generous. Yeah. You're right, Janner. <laughs> Are you actually a Janner? Born and bred. Penny Are come you? quick. Penny come quick. Born there. Where my first flat was, Whittington Street. Holdrove Street I was. Were you? I used to right. walk past Whittington Street on the way to Stoke School. Ah. Yeah, went to High Park Infants and Juniors and Stoke Damerel Community College. You are a proper Janet. Proper Janet, yeah. Proper Janet. It's funny, we were talking about this. I'm working with Plymouth City Council on a panel of people who are looking at where we take Britain's Ocean City brand next. Okay. So talking about rebranding, it's like, how do we use it more? And discussions came up about, is being a Janna projecting what a Janna is outside of Plymouth, good or bad? So if you think of Scousers, they're proud to be Scousers. Okay. They embrace their Scouseness, mm-hmm. if you see what I mean. Yeah. But until relatively recently, we haven't, have we? Do you know what I mean? I think the first time I noticed it, sounds silly, was pandemic. There was a bus and on the side it said, be a good Janna and look after Nana. So it was about, oh, you know, staying. Yeah. And I just thought, we haven't really called ourselves that. Hey, I don't know if it's it, your view on that is good or bad. but no, it was just shout about it. Yeah, yeah. shout about it. It's fun. Yeah. You know, and it's who we are. And Argyle now, I don't know if you've been lately, but they have the Janna song at the start. Do they really? Yeah, we all sing with Janna's, Janna's. Yeah, I won't sing because people would switch off immediately. <laughs> anyway, there can't be anyone in the world who doesn't know who you are, but I think most people would know you as a former Royal Marine. Yes. Uh, injured, triple amputee. Yeah. Uh, and you won 11 medals at the Invictus Games? On two separate occasions. Yeah. yeah not at the same time. But, uh, well... Don't do yourself down. I think, I think 11's all right, you know. I mean, 11, yeah. must try harder, you know. Yeah, no. Try and do 11 in one games next time. I'll um, try. Yeah, and you've raised a bit for charity too. Over the years, yeah. I've been in and out of the charity game since 2010, working with various military charities. Yeah. I mean, it's impossible to say accurately how much, but if I had to guess, since 2010, across the board, I've got to say close to 5, 5.5 mil, something like that. Blooming heck. Yeah. Yeah, you haven't sat around doing nothing, have you? I don't remember the last time I sat around doing nothing. <laughs> no. um, well, i always on the go. Energy. So if you don't mind, I want to start with what I think people would think is the most, well, the biggest thing in your life, I suppose, that happened. And that, that is how you became injured, if you don't mm-hmm. mind me asking. So that life-changing event, I understand you were the first triple amputee to survive the Afghanistan conflict. So yeah. if you don't mind, mm-hmm. tell us to bugger off if you don't want to, but tell us what happened, what you remember about it, and Mm -hmm. and how it kind of happened. So I was deployed to Afghanistan Mm -hmm. in 2007. The 7th of September 2007 is when I landed and was due to be there for a six-month tour. We were working at a place called Ford Operating Base Robinson, which was situated in the Helmand province. Mm -hmm. So, you know, not a great place to be, very kinetic, probably one of the most dangerous places on earth at the time, potentially still now with the amount of undiscovered landmines and ordnance mm-hmm. that's around there but our job when we got there was our overarching aim was to win the hearts and minds of the locals you know we were there to provide them with protection to try and give them a better quality of life whilst also hunting down the bad guys and the trying Taliban to make, I guess were the bad yeah, guys trying to they? make the world a better place mm. so you know no easy tasking mm. um, it was difficult but we had done a lot of training and needing up to it you know, it's what we do as Royal Marines and men and women in the military. That's what we sign up for. And it was going great, to be fair. For the first three months, we were conducting routine foot patrols on a regular basis. We were acting on intelligence that we had gathered or been given about things like enemy locations and weapon caches and that kind of stuff. We were, well, I think we were improving the lives for the locals there we would you know give them food and water and you know have a bit of banter and fun with them and work side by side with them to try and complete some of our objectives and then on the early hours of christmas eve morning i was called up to the headquarters compound with a group of my friends and we were given a brief on our next foot patrol we'd been kind of confined to where we were working from for a couple of days because of lack of manpower so we were all a bit eager Still crazy, ready to get out there. Yeah, get out and stretch our legs. And Mm. the thing is, when you're in these places, in these scenarios, you're 
always being watched and observed and any sort of disruption to the normal pattern of daily life like being confined to base for a couple of days is a real good opportunity to launch an attack because the enemy will assume something's wrong yeah, yeah. you know you're at a weak disadvantage so we'll attack so we were all just keen to get back out on the ground and take the fight to them again so we were given the brief we went back to our compound we started preparing all of our kit and equipment like we'd done every other time to that point and then we went back to the hq compound and we formed up by the rear entrance of the camp now there were two groups two sections with eight men in each section one was going to go north and one was going to go south and we were told to patrol the immediate perimeter of the camp pushing no more than 300 meters and then meet at the front entrance mm -hmm. of the camp so now the opposite side so mm -hmm. very very basic low level infantry style soldiering you know and compared yeah. to what we've been doing before where you push out for four five six seven hours at a time yeah. you go however many miles you go across undulating terrain or it was literally go out the back door mm. walk around the perimeter come in the front door and it was just for us to get out and stretch our legs while we started regaining momentum we had not received any new intelligence mm. that there was any extra cause for concern so as far as we were concerned it is literally Pretty go out standard. for a bit of a bimble come in open yeah. your christmas presents and have a bit of fun on christmas so they opened the rear entrance to the camp and i was second in command of the group that went north the other guys went south and about five hours into it both sections then found themselves at the opposite side so now we're close to the front entrance of the camp ready to finish up for the day it took that long to go around it's a big thing it was pretty big yeah but you have to be very slow very thorough right. we were engaging with civilians and chatting okay and right one of the target indicators for ieds were like rocks that were piled up if we'd ever yeah. see that we'd have to report it back and then uh, someone okay. would come and investigate yeah. it later so yeah. it's a slow burn slow process, type thing yeah. right so it took us about five five and a half hours and as we were getting ready to finish up and go back in the section that i was in were on some high ground now slightly beneath us as we looked down from the high ground we could see like a semi bird's eye view of the camp that we were working out of and then down beneath that underneath the camp was the other group of men that we've been working with so we were in a very advantageous position tactically because we could obviously see everything yeah. around us and in a firefight it's a lot easier to fight going downhill than yeah. it's up. So our job in that instance was to give protection, what we call overwatch mm. for that group. Well, they went into camp, got behind the perimeter wall where they were safer. They would then return the favor while we came down off the high feature and they went back into camp. So very, very basic, low-level stuff, done it a million times. Now, normally, if you're out patrolling and you go farm, so you stop, you want to try and get behind a building, a wall, a tree, a rock, a shrub, whatever's yeah, going to give yeah. you some cover from view and some cover from fire mm. in case you get into a firefight. But because we were up on this high ground and effectively on a ridge line, we didn't have any of those luxuries. Now, about four meters in front of me, there was like a shallow bowl in the ground, like mm. just a dip. So in my mind, I thought, all right, if I take half these lads in there, we get down on our stomachs. Mm. Anyone that's looking up at us from beneath us, because there was nothing higher than us. Yeah. Anyone that's looking up is going to have a hard time seeing us, yeah. which means they'll have a hard time engaging us with any sort of weaponry. So in my mind, in that scenario, that was the best protection yeah. I can give to those guys. So the guy in charge, Corporal Halesby, he took his half of the section and started giving them fire positions just outside of this bowl. I jumped into the bowl and the lads started taking their fire positions up. When they were happy, I mean, there's all these boring things you've got to do get down you've got to have arcs of fire they've got to be interlocking everyone's got to know what their area responsibility is all that mm. kind of stuff once they had done all that and they were happy they gave me the thumbs up i did a few checks because there's a couple of things you got to do i just wanted to make sure that defensively in case there was an attack we were good to go and quick to react and then when they were happy and i was happy i started slowly walking over towards the position that i selected for myself and as I put my right knee on the floor to get on my stomach, that was the moment that I knelt on and detonated an improvised explosive device. Merry Christmas. Yeah. Do you remember it? I do. I remember the whole thing. Wow. And I think actually, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you about it, absolutely. But I think 
that I'm fortunate that I remember it because it's never affected me mentally since. And I know a lot of men and some women that I went through rehab with who have been involved in IED explosions that were knocked out because of the blast that remember nothing. But I mean, everything's stored up in your subconscious somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And then many years later, it comes, it comes back and that's when yeah. they suffer. But I remember the whole thing, you know, I, I knelt on this device, it exploded because of the terrain we were working in, very sandy, very dusty. This huge dust cloud gets created in, in the explosion. Mm. I had no idea what I had done. And my first thought was, we're under attack. Yeah. I thought someone had took a pot shot with a mortar or an RPG. Yeah, yeah. It had gone off close by, created this dust cloud. So my fight and flight kicked in and my first thought is ID the enemy, neutralize the threat. Yeah. Now I couldn't see anything, but I knew from where I was positioned, where I was about to be looking, that behind me, beneath me, about 600 meters away, down where the other group of men were, there was a small rectangular forestry block, like mm. a copse of trees and everything else around the area, there were farmer's fields. So they'd been plowed, they were flat, muddy fields. So there was no cover apart from this small area of trees. So instinctively I thought, well, if you're gonna be stupid enough to take a pot shot at us, you're gonna do it from those trees because you can, what they call shoot and scoot and just yeah. leg it after you've yeah. done it. So in my mind, even though I can't see, I remember thinking, turn around Mark, turn around, ID the enemy and start shooting. Because when you start shooting, the rest of the lads will start shooting. And only 200 meters away, maybe 300, in camp we had this big HMG machine gun that would tear that forest in half. Mm. So I thought, well, as soon as someone gets on that, they see we've ID'd them, they'll finish the job. So in my mind, I'm saying, turn around, Mark, turn around. ID the enemy. You know, just panicking that my friends are going to get hurt or killed. And even though I couldn't see, after about four times of saying it, I realized that even though my brain was telling my body to do something, my body wasn't replying. Body wasn't it wasn't responding. Yeah. And I couldn't figure out why. So I just thought, okay, I'll wait. I'll wait until this dust cloud settles. I'll see what's going on, mm -hmm. make some very quick decisions, and then try and get everyone out there safely. Mm -hmm. So we got to about chest height. And, you know, I'm filled with adrenaline yeah, right now, like more than I've ever had in my entire life. And I'm terrified that my friends have been potentially hurt or killed. Mm -hmm. Still didn't know what I had done. <clears throat> yeah. I couldn't see any of them. So I carried on waiting. The dust cloud got about six inches from the floor, hit the ground and then disappeared. And that was the moment where I looked down to where my legs should have been. And they had both been just completely ripped off from the knees down. That's, I say ripped off. I had tibias and I had fibias, but this might sound very strange. You know when you have a really well-cooked rack of ribs and you can literally slide the bone out and it's clean, right? Mark, yeah. The heat, I imagine, just completely incinerated the flesh, the muscle, the tissue, everything. And all that all you could see were tibias and fibias covered in dust and sand and dirt. Mm. And you could almost, like a chicken bone, at the kneecap, just snap them off. It, everything had just been incinerated. And uh, I didn't really know what I was looking at. It's very, your body's fascinating. It's very, it's amazing how it processes things like this. So there was no pain. I wasn't in any pain. I wasn't panicking. I was trying to process what it was that I was looking at, which I couldn't. And then I probably looked for about two or three seconds and then thought about my team again. So mm -hmm. I, I kind of just snapped out of it and thought this isn't important. The guys are important. And I looked over my right shoulder and I saw Sean who was the guy in charge. And he was, I mean, his face, he was clearly in a state of shock. Mm -hmm. You know, he was gray, his eyes were huge. And so I'm trying to think, what have I just looked at? Why does he look like that? Trying to piece it together like in yeah. like super quick time. So I went to look back to my legs and I got to like the three o'clock position. And then I saw my arm mm -hmm. just lying in the sand. It, it was still attached to my body, but from my bicep to my wrist, the entire thing had just been ripped open the upper and lower bone, I don't know where they were, they just shattered, completely gone. My hand was still relatively intact, but it was completely unsalvageable. So, you know, it was, um, <laughs> it, it was a mess, an absolute mess. And the only way and the only reason that I got out of there and I'm able to tell this story now is because of the sheer professionalism and bravery and courage of 
the other men that I was working with. In this scenario, and then this sounds very counterproductive, we are trained not to go running in to help the casualty. You've got to go against every emotion and instinct you might have. be further... Exactly. Yeah. And there were, there were six others. <gasps> so I kind of knew they weren't going to be running in to get me quickly. What they did do was everything that they knew they should do perfectly. Mm. So we'll drill this, like practice, 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 and we'll, we'll mess it up like nine times out of 10. But when you need to do it, it's just phenomenal the way these guys kicked in mm. into play. You know, one guy's already calling in a helicopter and giving what we call a nine liner, like a casualty report, mm. so that they can be prepared when they get to me. Mm. There's another guy calling an all round defense in case there's like a small arms AK 47 yeah. follow up. Yeah. There's another guy, 19 years old, eight weeks out of training on his stomach with a bayonet, prodding the floor, like crawling towards me to mark a safe path when the medic got to me. Because he did that, because they did that, when the medic did get to me, he was able to run straight in. He administered morphine because now I was kind of understanding. Saying, were you starting to feel pain? It, not. It was severe discomfort. Like, <laughs> Sorry, I'm not, I don't mean to laugh. No, no. It's severe discomfort. So if you imagine, in both my legs and my arm, it was like this unbearable pins and needles, like the most intense pins and needles that you've right. ever had. It's just really right. uncomfortable. Yeah. It was bizarre. But the medic got in and gave me the morphine. He then put tourniquets on my two legs. He asked me to do the one on my arm to keep me alive, Focused I guess. Focused as well. Yeah. It would give you something to do rather than just right. sit there and think. Because at this point, I had my eyes closed and I was just groaning. I remember feeling utterly exhausted. Like yeah. every bit of me had drained out of my body. Literally, yeah. like, like your soul was leaving. It was that, like I couldn't even open my eyes and I was just going, uh uh, just to let him know I was alive. And I gave him this really feeble attempt of doing this tourniquet up just to keep him happy. <laughs> and then he, so he had to scoop up what was left. My right leg was still kind of hanging on and he had to scoop up what was left of the right leg and the right arm, put it on my stomach, put me on a stretcher. This little bow that we're in now, I've read the report. That's why I know there were six other devices around there. It, it was 12 feet deep by 15 feet around. So if you could write on paper, what's the worst possible scenario to evacuate a casualty from? From there. We're on high ground. We're in a 12 foot by 15 foot crater. We've got six other IEDs around us. We've got to get down. I mean, this is loose terrain. It's just mm. crumbling everywhere when you're trying to get down. I don't know how he got me down. I had my eyes closed the entire time. But he eventually did on like a canvas stretcher. Threw me in the back of this vehicle that was waiting. And as the vehicle was climbing up the hill, to go into the front entrance to the camp, what we were supposed to walk through. When I say potholes, imagine a pothole in Plymouth on steroids, right? Yeah. The, these things were like... Surely not that bad. <laughs> no, I'm Super bad. <laughs> but we went down one of them and the doctor, the medic that just helped me fell out the back and then I fell out after him. But the guy driving, who was my sergeant major, swung around, reached out and grabbed whatever he could grab to hold me in. And... He just clamped his his hands onto my femur bone that was coming out of my right leg and held me because like my tail bone was on the tail gate of the vehicle at this point. Now he left the medic. The medic was fine. The other group of men we were with were at the bottom of that hill. So he had eight heavily armed men to look after him. They got me into camp, took me to the helicopter landing site. And the last thing that I remember is the Chinook landing, the sandstorm that's created from the propeller blades and then the heat from the exhaust and then when the Chinook landed I blacked out well I later found out that they had pronounced me as dead on the scene they thought you died yes yep bloody hell now this is I mean this is another phenomenal story and I tell it wherever I can I don't remember any of this next part but I've met the entire medical team that were on that helicopter and what they said happened was they put me on the back and there was another casualty in the blast, Stu. He had got shrapnel in his back and shrapnel in his tricep. So it wasn't life-threatening. Mm -hmm. When they put me on the back of the helicopter, they felt me for a pulse and they said I didn't have one. They couldn't get any fluids into me because all my veins had collapsed because of the massive blood loss. Mm -hmm. And then when they put an oxygen mask on me, they said it should have started to steam up if I was breathing, yeah, yeah. but it didn't. So they've got to make a lot of quick decisions. So they yeah. went, this guy's dead, leave him. You yeah. need to go work on Stu. As one of the medics walked past me to get some equipment to go and work back on Stu, he said that my eyes started to flutter, 
which to him was a sign my heart was still beating. Yeah. So he alerted some of the other medics. They came back to work on me. And uh, this still gives me goosebumps now. So three days before this incident, whoever's in charge of the military medical world had green-lighted this new technique to be used, where if you can't get intravenous lines into somebody's veins, you can drill into their tibias and their fibias. Problem being, yeah. mine were trashed. Like yeah. the one, whatever I'd left was trashed. So they, they immediately thought, we'll try this. Oh dear, we can't do this. Yeah. So they, on the spot, this had never been theorized, never been tested, never even been talked about ever. They decided to drill into my hip. You know, they drill one through the front, one through the back. Right. The first time they did it, the line didn't bite. They said that they didn't pull the skin tight enough. Right. So they pulled them out, tightened the skin, went back in. They said within three minutes, I was awake, responsive, and answering the questions coherently that they were asking me. They said the, the, <laughs> the, the first thing I said was that my bum was really sore. And apparently that's a side effect of large amounts of morphine. Right. So Charlie, she started crying because she knew then I'd be okay. Right. Um, and then they flew me back to- Who's Charlie, so? Charlie was the lady who, she was a very high ranking officer who was in charge of all the medics. She did six back-to-back -to -back tours after mine. I was her first, what we call VSI, very serious injured. Yeah. And uh, because of what happened on that day and all those other tours she did, she saved with her teams hundreds of lives because of all these new procedures and techniques that they'd implemented. And she got an award, which is the medical world's equivalent of a Victoria Cross. I think it's right. called the Florence Nightingale Award. Right. Wow. And her nickname is the Angel of Afghanistan. Right. She saved so Actually, many people. And a lot of that down to what she learned with you. Initially, yeah. Things like these dressings that smelt like I think they had prawns or shellfish in because it's some coagulant that right. clots blood quickly. And, you know, the thing with the drilling into the hip bones and all this, Scott, they just learned a lot. And then, you know, sadly, more and more casualties were coming after me. Mm. But they were saving them. Mm. They were saving them because of what they were learning. So you, you had that horrendous injury and you were in the Chinook and then you woke up. I guess, where were you when you woke up? And what happened over the next days, weeks, months? So I've got like a three-day black spot i don't remember anything i woke up on the 28th of december in selly oak hospital in birmingham mm. and i remember i was choking on like a feeding tube and i couldn't open my eyes i was absolutely exhausted it felt like someone had put fishing hooks through my eyelids and then hung weights on them mm. and i remember as i was coming around i could remember hearing lots of people around me and i was choking and they they were all saying take the tube out he's choking and everything was echoing, I think mm. because of the drugs that I was on and the pain relief. And I was just mumbling, I couldn't say anything, but I heard voices that I recognized. And one of the voices I heard was my wife, Becky. Mm. And uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know why I did this. I couldn't see her, but I could hear her and I could tell how close she was to me. And I was completely exhausted and wiped out. And she was trying to talk to me and I was just mumbling. And uh, I actually proposed to her. Did like, you? Yeah. And she said, all she said was, did you just ask me to marry you? It took about 15 minutes for me to try and figure this out. And I just, she said, you just smiled and then fell back asleep. Right. And then so they brought me out. They reduced the medication the next day. And uh, I was- When did she say yes? We need to know. In, in that moment. She did? In that moment, Did you yeah. know she'd said yes? Yeah. And then oh, she right. said, you smiled and fell asleep. And uh, that was it wonderful. for that, that night. And then uh, they- Brought me out of the coma slightly the next day where I was a bit more with it and could understand a little bit more, mm. more what was going on. But that first week was wild. You know, I was on so much pain medication that the first day I thought I'd just lost some toes and some fingers. And then the day after that, it was kind of like, oh, no, no, it's my feet and my hand. And it was like each day was getting further and further until I think day seven, I used to be right hand dominant. And I pulled my right hand out from under the bed sheet to scratch my nose because I had an itch. And I'd been doing this all week. Like anywhere I was itching or whatever, I'd use my right arm. And I giggled. And then I said, what are you giggling for? And I had a lot of hallucinations that week because of the morphine. Like not bad ones, like funny ones. Like I met Will Smith and, you know, <laughs> eight foot bottle of ketchup in my room and all this stuff. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm hallucinating again. It looks like my right arm's falling off. And she just looked at me with that look as if to say... How do I tell him? But yeah. she didn't have to. I, I was like, okay. Because day by day, I kind of got a better understanding of my situation. Mm -hmm. And by that day, I was like, okay, cool. 
both legs above the knee, right on above the elbow. We're, I know now. Cool. Right. After well, you they, say cool, were you, what was your sort of mental state at that point? Because I think a lot of people would think, you know, it's over and my life's over and it's never going to be the same again and be in a pit of depression or... No, it wasn't like that. And I have to be careful how I say this. The medication they had me on made me just think everything was wonderful. I don't know what it was they were feeding me, but I didn't care about anything. Okay. I thought the world was great for that whole week. It was like, yeah, it doesn't matter. No one needs a right arm and, you know, legs are overrated. So we'll get by without them. This all right. What, you know, what's going on in the world? And everything was just great. Right. I don't know what it was, but I can see why, you know, people can get addicted to stuff like that because I didn't care about anything. Yeah. And then they moved me upstairs after seven days and again, started this process of further reducing that medication to let me understand more of what was going on. And that was the real struggle. Those five weeks in hospital then were a bit difficult. They were up and down where I really knew my situation and I really started to see the struggle straight away because, you know, I've got a giant scar on my remaining hand where I had shrapnel tore my palm open so I could only use two fingers in the, right. in the beginning. So... You know, even things like sitting up in bed, I would just be sweating and, you know, everything was just a nightmare in that first five weeks. So I've left hand dominant now. I'd never really used my left hand. I had two fingers to use. I had people feeding me, tubes everywhere. You know, great thing was catheters are great. You don't have to get out to go for a pee. That's wonderful. Um, you can just lay in bed and pee yourself. <laughs> but yeah, it was a bit rough. And then I got, it almost feels like a scene out of a movie. Got the old knock on the door about three and a half weeks in from this doctor he wasn't part of my team i'd never met him before but he was an amputation specialist and he came in and said to me quite matter-of-factly you need to stop preparing for life in a wheelchair because i've never met anybody who's got one leg missing above the knee that has any success in walking mm. and he'd been doing it for 33 years and this is january 2008 and he went on to explain to me that prosthetics were so painful so difficult to use and took so much energy that most people just threw them in a cupboard and then got in a wheelchair okay, and that's with one leg missing and i was missing both legs above the knee and my dominant arm above the elbow mm. so you know that hit me real hard and i'll be very honest that made me want to take my life because i was 24 years old and i'd gone from being six foot two and weighing 16 stone to being three foot five maybe and at that point, about eight and a half, having lost the limbs and fighting off the infections, I had lost my dominant arm. I knew my career was over. You know, I had tubes all in and out of me and people feeding me and, you know, all sorts of stuff going on. And then he came in and told me, when you actually get out of here, life's going to suck anyway. So, and then he just walked out. Bloody hell. Yeah. Nice bedside manner. Yeah. And you know what, right? I don't think there was any underlying motive in there. He wasn't trying to fire me up and he wasn't being malicious. I think that he had just done that job for so long that it was just like checking email. It's just like non-emotional. It's like, yeah, got an email, delete, send, go. And he just walks in. He's given that talk so many times. He just had no emotion attached to it. Mm. And I actually found out later that he was removed from that ward those poor old people that he got put on the geriatrics ward instead because he kept on telling all the military guys <laughs> that the same thing, you know, you're stuffed, you're not going to be able to walk again. And then he went to go give the good news to all the elderly. I don't understand why, but yeah, I just think he didn't have a great bedside manner. You say you thought about taking your own life. When did it become less like that? Because ever since I've known you, you've been incredibly positive. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I say I've known you, I don't know you, but I know of you, if you see what I mean. And whenever I've seen you, you're smiling, you're happy, you're telling jokes, you're mm -hmm. banter. When did it turn around? Because I've heard, and if I've got this wrong, forgive me, but I've heard you say you wouldn't change what happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's funny you say about banter, and I'm always very careful when I say this, because this is not a subject that I don't think any of us should take lightly. But when I was in that stage, it lasted about three or four days when I just was unbelievably down. And it was about two or three o'clock in the morning. Those are the worst times because you're just on your own and your whole sleep patterns interrupted and your medications messing everything up. And I was kind of going through this process in my head of how I would do it. And I thought, what, you can't even cut your own wrist. And I laughed to myself about it. <laughs> and I was yeah. like, you're useless. And that dark humor that I had, I was like, 
Is that uh, the military humour? I think so, yeah. Great yeah, sense of and I was just, even in dark times. Yeah, and I was just like, you, you, I just laughed about it. And I was like, and then that little bit of humour, I kind of pushed me out of it. And then, I don't know if you want to call it destiny or fate or whatever, but then about two days later, I get a visit from a guy missing both his legs above the knees who was injured in Iraq in 2005. And he showed me like that you could walk around on prosthetics mm. and he, he had both his arms but he was double above the knee amputee like me and this doctor said like a guy with one leg missing above the knee can't do it i'm looking at a guy with two legs above the knee doing it so yeah. all of a sudden i've gone from rock bottom to sky high got a laptop in my room started doing all this research on prosthetics and triple amputees trying to prepare for when i left hospital to go to rehab and from that minute on i was just pretty much like give me the legs get out of my way mm. do you know what i mean that was it once I physically saw my own eyes, somebody doing this. Is that the sort of Royal Marine attitude, that just get on with it? Or is it the Mark Hormone attitude? It, it was the, well, if this human being can achieve this, why can't this human being? Right. Like, all I've got to do really is copy his physical and mental processes and I should be able to achieve them and I can lean on him for a bit of support if I need it. And I know it's going to be hard work. You know, nothing worth doing is easy. And it was, it was horrendous. I actually ended up going to America because I found a triple amputee who had injuries very similar to mine, who was out there doing all the things that I was being told aren't possible for a triple amputee. So he never used a wheelchair. He could swim, he could run, he could drive, he traveled on his own, he had no carers. He had one set of legs where I had like six at that point. And he just seemed like, he had just broke the mold and changed the game with mm. his team. So I actually ended up going AWOL from the military i asked permission to go out there and got denied and i spent about two weeks you know waking up at two in the morning not being able to sleep feeling a bit stressed and overwhelmed and you know because you're in the military and you've got to do what you're told Why right didn't they let you go they said that what was on offer was what was on offer and i said look look at what this guy can do if i can go over there and meet him it's going to change my life and mm. more and more people are coming through the system i can come back here show you guys what i've learned and then we can make everyone else's life easier. And they're like, no, this is what you've got. So after a couple of weeks of, you know, talking with my wife and waking up stressed out and overwhelmed, I just got on a plane on the 9th of June, 2009. I was just like, I'll, I'll deal with the consequences when I get back. What's the worst they can do? I'm not getting promoted. My career's over. They'll shout, scream at me maybe. <laughs> and then I'll just be like, okay, cool. Yeah. There's not a lot they can do. There's not that a lot. Already been no, done and I, do, I don't mean that in a disrespectful no, way. No, I just no, meant no. I needed to do what was best for my future. Yeah. So I hopped on a plane. They didn't let me take a wheelchair. They didn't let me take a carer. I had to go on my own, fly to Oklahoma. It was terrifying because, I mean, that doctor was right. It's three to 500% more energy for me to do anything than an able-bodied person. Mm. And in that early stage of my recovery, I was changing my shirt like four or five times a day because mm. of sweat. Mm. And I got on the plane at Heathrow and, you know, I was sweaty and Dank, and I was really self-conscious about you know sitting next to people, especially as a Royal Marine. You shower like forty-five times a day, like your personal <laughs> hygiene is right. like this big thing. And I'm sat there just clammy and moist and yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I went over there, and it was brutal. Mm. Like three weeks of no rest, no wheelchair. Every day when I got up, I couldn't take the easy route because I didn't have the easy route. The wheelchair was back in the UK. I had to put the legs on despite the bruising, the soreness, the cuts, the blisters, the tenderness. And she had to get up, you know, I'd stretch out every morning and then just put them on gently, spend time in my room, just getting them locked in and ready to go. And then spend the entire day, like shopping at the mall, riding roller coasters at the theme park, going to the grocery store, just doing normal things with this, team yeah. going out to eat prior to that everything was in a clinical rehabilitation environment you know that we didn't even go outdoors so you know a gust of wind comes crazy new mom with a pram you know you have to dodge out the way we weren't learning any of those things mm. but when i went to america they're just like it's just tough love like get out let's go i'd be carrying their shopping bags and all sorts and it was physically and mentally i've got no shame admitting this it was horrendous like it got to the point where the guy that I was staying with who helped program my legs, I never really lost my temper. I got so close sometimes. He had a dream one night that I had gone into his room with a knife. <laughs> he could just sense my rage yeah. and the frustration of trying to figure all this stuff out constantly, like falling down in public and smacking my head off of the railings and scraping my elbow and 
you know, I walked across the road, a zebra crossing, and just bang, right in the middle of the road. All the cars are like, uh, uh, and I'm like, I'm panicking, trying to get up and getting stressed out. No one would help me. They're like, come on, Mark, let's go. I'm like, give me a hand. Wow. They're like, nope, you're on your own. Bloody just going hell. through this horrendous, tough love routine, but it worked. Yeah. Because the 9th of June 2009 is, is the last time that I ever used a wheelchair. I don't own one. It worked. It was short-term pain for long-term gain. Wow. You know? And I was willing to do it. So I'm really sorry. I, just, I want to ask a couple of other questions about this. Then I'll move on some of the amazing things you've done. But So you wouldn't change what happened. Mm -mm. That for some people would seem incredible. How do you feel about who did it? Do you have any anger towards whoever put those IEDs there? I don't. And that they're no longer of this earth. That's all I know. I know what happened in the follow-up after they were found. And, you know, so I don't know whether that's why I don't, because I'm still here and they're not. It might be something to do with it, but I don't know. It's difficult. The older you get, you look at things very, very differently. Mm, yeah. You know, you look at war and all this stupidity through a different lens. Um, well, I was going to ask you, so do you still look back and think, it was a right mission for the right reasons and and the, it... hmm the, <laughs> the more i learn about the way the world works the more i think probably not like iraq and afghanistan i'm just i don't know i'm not going to get too deep into it no. but i just think there are reasons that are kept from us why we do these things and reasons that are put in front of us apparently why we do these things and we'll never really know the truth mm. And as a young man, you know, you go out and you serve your country, you do what you're told. You don't really dig into the politics of it. You're just like, okay, I joined the military. They're telling me to go here and do this. I'll go here and do this. You did it for the right reasons. You were there thinking, as you said at the start, you know, you're making the world a better place. Well, know. this is the thing, right? People think that a lot of people join the military, especially something like the Royal Marines, because you want to go around the world killing people. And mm. it's, it's stupid. I'm sure there are people like that. But the reality is you want to go around the world, or at least I did, helping people, right? And getting rid of bad people and stopping bullies and letting people live freely, right? This is a lot of things. People find this very hard to understand when I try and explain this to them. I didn't just join the military because I wanted to go around the world shooting people. That's stupid. Yeah. I went there to try and help people, yeah. you know? And then, you know, I'm 40 years old now. I was 19 when I went to Iraq, 24 when I went to Afghanistan. Very different person. I am now compared to what I was back then. And just one more thing on this subject. Uh, forgive me, it was a very personal question, but did you ever worry it would affect your relationship? You know, because of what happened to you? Did you think, oh, she'll leave me now because, you know, I'm injured? And I did. Mm. So my wife is from Surrey. Mm. We met in Plymouth because her and her friends were down at the university finishing off their degree. So they had a year down here. Mm. We met, we had been going out for 12 months when I got injured. I have a daughter, Kezia. She's 18 now from a previous relationship. So I was 24. She was 21. So I, you look at it and you've got a 21-year-old girl who's just finished university, who's got the world at her feet, mm. who now has a partner with three limbs missing and a daughter. And life could be very difficult. And all of her family lived outside of London. She didn't know anyone down here. So every logical thing in the world says the best thing to do would be to leave you know what i mean go live your life and mm. but she didn't and you know she stuck around <laughs> she's still around now we've got two kids of our own so you know we've got three Wonderful. kids together we've been married since 2nd of may 2009 it was literally four weeks before i went to america we got married living thriving Good. having fun you know Good. wow mm. and we're going to come on to some of what you've done since you've been awarded an mbe and a pride of britain award how did that feel yes i was a little bit conflicted and i'm not ungrateful at all but it was the reasons that i got them the pride of britain was for fundraising and the mbe was for services to the royal marines and veterans community and that's just stuff i love doing and so to be rewarded for it, you're like, well, you know, I'm just having, you're allowed to love I'm having a do. really good time. Like, I don't, you know, you don't have to reward me for it. <laughs> you're me allowed my, to. I know, but me and my mates are out here having a, a wild time and, you know, we're swimming, running, doing this, doing that. And it's like, this is a, an amazing life. I'm rebuilding my life and having a lot of fun doing it. So when you get these awards, you know, you, you're very, very grateful for them, but you kind of feel a bit of a fraud. And yeah. it's like, well, you know, I'm not doing anything exceptional. I'm just like, having fun. Well, I think most people would 
argue that you deserve them. But you mentioned swimming. You did a major swimming challenge, didn't you? Yeah, a world record from Drake's Island back to Firestone Bay. I'm still fighting it now. This <laughs> is a bit of a nightmare, to be fair. Oh, it was the third time I did it. Guinness kept on messing up all the paperwork and getting all the oh. details wrong. <laughs> and then they sent me details of a guy that did it with two arms. And I'm like, right, I've got no legs. I've got one arm. Are we okay with that? Like, okay, we've got that. This is what I'm doing. It's a thousand meters, one kilometer open water sea swim. Have we got that bit? So by the third time, they've got it all and we're good to go. And you've got to have an unbelievable amount of evidence. I had like yeah. six people filming it. I had to get like 40 independent witness statements. I got the harbour master and the deputy harbour master to measure everything, right? <laughs> now they do this every day. I don't understand how it all works with tides and current, but they do. So they measured the route for me. Yeah. So we submitted all the evidence. And then this was nearly a year ago. It'll be a year on Christmas Eve. And they came back and I'm... I've got an email in my inbox now waiting to reply to saying, we've measured 999 meters. We need you to do it again. And I'm like, no, like this is the third time. I said, I've spoke to the hard master and the assistant hard master. They do this every day. They know these waters. They know all these measures, everything way better than you on Google Earth. Right. So I've put them in touch now and hopefully they're going to turn around. Mark, you did it. You know, you did it. I know. It. Do you I know mean. what's frustrating? Like the week before I did it, Someone got a world record for, I think he sniffed 64 armpits in 60 seconds. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, I'm trying to do something here, like, oh, phenomenal. I'm going to ask the booth to get ready with the bleep, but f*** them. <laughs> you, you did it. Stuff yeah, them. Hey, who cares? You know. And I mean, going in the water with all four limbs must be scary. But how does your buoyancy work? How do you propel yourself? Do you not feel like you're going to drown? No. I did the first time in the swimming pool. But the sea is very different. It's a lot more buoyant. But I do always have to have about 20% of air in my lungs at all times or else I do sink. I found that out very quickly the first time I tried in a swimming pool, which is why when I go in the sea, I always have experienced sea swimmers with me and safety. And as far as propelling yourself goes, that was just trial and error. Right. Just weeks and months of trial and error to see what worked so you stretch out your arm and then scoop water back i guess do you or? for like an overarm freestyle thing yeah i put what's left of my right arm out in front so almost like it cuts the water and then i rotate my torso very slightly you probably can't even notice it mm. when i'm doing it but just so i can get that extra reach and then when i'm going backwards get that extra catch so you've applied some science to this you haven't just sort of jumped in and thrashed about i did jump in and thrash about to begin with <laughs> sorry i don't know no, no, right. and then you try <laughs> swimming the way you used to and you realize that it's pointless like kicking your feet and your arm stump because they don't do anything and you're just wasting energy so then you think all right what's the most energy efficient way for me to do this and what's the smoothest way for me to do this because that was one of the hardest things with swimming was my default setting as a former Royal Marine is brute force and ignorance and it's like rah 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 with swimming <laughs> you have to just relax and cruise and yeah. the smoother you are the faster you are right. and that was very difficult for me mentally to unlearn that and then relearn that but once you do it's just so peaceful swimming is so peaceful with your challenges and what's happened to you doesn't that make you more aware of your own mortality more scared are you braver or does it not work like that this is going to sound a bit strange, but I've pretty much come as close to death as you can come. Uh, yeah. If not, I've crossed that line and been dragged back across it. It's very peaceful. I wasn't scared, wasn't terrified. It was very calming and peaceful. So it's not like I don't fear it. I don't do these challenges because I'm some sort of adrenaline junkie or I'm trying to put myself in difficult situations. I just be, be feel like at peace with it. I just feel I've experienced something that most people won't experience until they experience it. And it's not what I think a lot of people think it is. Mm. As far as our experience, there's no white light or anything like that. You just, it's like falling asleep. It's been extremely tired and I'm more tired than you've ever been in your life, exhausted, tired. And you fall asleep peacefully and calmly and you just don't wake up again. Only for me, because of the medics, I woke up again. And so... You know, medics. everything's just a, you know, you do look at life differently. I know it sounds a bit corny, but you do look at it differently and you do take more opportunities and you do want to achieve more and build a bigger, better life and a legacy because you're just grateful. You're grateful that you get the second chance.
Well, it's funny that my next two questions, one was what do you want your legacy to be? But also what's your next mad challenge? Knowing you, you've got something mad up your sleeve. I don't. No. Really? One of the things I do want to do, the Just Given page I put up last year, I think it was, for the challenges I did, is at about £674,000. I really want to take it to a million, mm. but I don't want to keep putting my body through the torture that I've had to put it through. And my professional life's picking up a lot now as well, so I don't have the time to dedicate to it. So what I was thinking of doing was getting my hand bike and trying to enter the London Marathon, the Boston Marathon, the New York Marathon. But hand cycling would be very easy. So I was going to try... Easy? And... Yeah, because it's flat. And it's like 26 miles flat. It's not even a warm-up on a hand cycle. I was going to get a coffin made up and then put 150 kilos of weight in the coffin. And it's like a visual representation of remembering, you know, don't forget the Iraq and Afghan generation. I was going to put a flag on it because I've never done a marathon before. And when I've seen it, the media always get on the guy who's got the fridge on his back or the yeah. woman that's dressed as a turtle and ask what the Something story noticeable. is. Yeah, they don't know yeah. what the story is. So I just thought, what can I do that's not going to kill me physically, but it's going to get a lot of attention to raise a lot of money. So I think if a guy with three limbs missing with a coffin on the back of his bike doing the London Marathon or the Boston Marathon, it's going to get a lot of attention. So then I can explain what I'm doing point people to the Just Given page and then hit that million pound mark. And I don't think I'd even need to train for that. I think I could just turn up on the morning of the event and do that. Um, <laughs> so it fits in perfectly with my professional life now. I'm literally yeah, even here. What is your professional life now? What, do you, what all, are you doing? All sorts. Yeah. I'm literally after this going up to London. I've got a talk on tomorrow. I've got some brands that I do collaborations with. I've over the years from working, invested in property around Plymouth. I've got a couple of book projects on the go and I've just signed a TV deal. So I'm constantly up to London. What an incredible life you've got. Yeah. Moment. Yeah. And this is what, you know, you're talking about legacy. This is what it is. I just want to leave that message, I think, of, I think it's about resilience. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that gets me a little bit is that human beings, I think, as a whole have forgotten how capable they are. You know, when you're a kid, right, and you learn to walk, you watch a baby, you know, that first time it takes two steps, it falls down on its bum, giggles a little bit, and then, you know, it might try again that day, it might try again the next day. Eventually, though, that baby figures it out and learns to walk. It's not until you get older and you kind of get beaten down by the world and, you know, this stupid F-word failure comes out, mm. which is just ridiculous, yeah. that you start to mentally be like, oh, I can't do this, I can't do that, I'm not strong enough for this, I'm not fit enough for that, and it's garbage. You know, I just want to try and remind people that if there's something that you want to do, as long as you approach it in the right way, physically and mentally, you have a plan, you set a goal, you remain resilient because you're going to fail. You're going yeah. to get knocked on your butt and you have to get back up, not just quit at the first time. If you just keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, you're going to get there eventually. But I just think it frustrates me that humans are like, no, I can't do that. You can't. Uh, fear of failure is the worst. I mean, what do they say that failure isn't falling down, it's staying down. Yeah. And I think Muhammad Ali said, I've never failed. I've either succeeded or I've learned. Well, this, this is my exact point. This is my yeah, exact yeah. point. It's like the baby, it falls down, it, it learns. That didn't work. I'll try again tomorrow. So that didn't work. I'll try trying. again tomorrow. And they keep going with no loss of enthusiasm. But, you know, when people are going, ha ha, you failed or, oh, you know, I don't think you're you know, fit yeah, enough or strong enough. enough. Yeah. You start to have that mental battle like, oh, maybe they're right. Maybe I should just quit. When really, you just that's the point where you need to just keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I'm going to do one of my quotes again because only because people say things much more eloquently than I can. But I think Winston Churchill said, uh, "Courage isn't the lion that roars; it's that quiet voice at the end of the day that says, I will try again tomorrow.' Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's real courage, isn't it? rather than just give up. Yeah. So look, I'm going to wrap up in a minute. I'm sorry, I've got some rude questions to ask you, mm -hmm. though, if that's all right. Now, so I understand you're obese. Clinically, clinically, uh, you yeah. are obese. I'm three foot tall uh, and I weigh nine stone. So clinically, I'm <laughs> obese. Technically, when you do the body weight ratio thing, yep. the body mass index. And when I fill obese. out forms, but I have to There's say... nothing to you in the nicest possible way. I don't mean that as in arms and legs, but I mean, mm. you're slim and fit, aren't you? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. But you're clinically obese. On paper, yeah. 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 And, and I understand you have a sideline in acting, of particular roles. Yeah. I mean, you know, out of a bad situation, a lot of good can come. So I live a very unique life. And in the movie world, in the film world, they need amputee battle casualties they need zombies they need all sorts of stuff and so you're an obese zombie is what you're talking i'm about. an obese zombie uh, <laughs> in hollywood but yeah they pay you 
so I've been in The Witcher, you, you know, with the Henry Cavill thing yeah, as yeah. a battle casualty. You can do battle casualty simulations. So a lot of my friends will go with the military. It's quite funny because a unit will be on exercise, normally a medical unit, right. and they'll get crashed out of their bunks at like two in the morning. Oh, has there been a car accident? And then they'll have one of my friends lying underneath a upturned tank with blood all over their legs, screaming. And these people, you got to bear in mind, they've just been shook out of their beds. They're running and they, they think it's real. Yeah, they don't They've, know this. And, and they're, they're people throw up and they pass out. Sorry, and, I shouldn't laugh. But no, but it's hilarious. <laughs> and and then my friends are like, come on, just sort me out. And then they're confused. They're like, how's this guy talking to me so calmly when his legs are crushed under a tank? And it's, mm. yeah. So there are a lot of uses for us. And Halloween is particularly... Uh, <laughs> Particularly fun. You scare all the local kids, Mark. I do. I th I've done a couple of things over the years. I've done Chucky, the little ginger doll that from the eighties. Oh, that's scary. Yeah. I did a zombie on my lawn, where none of the kids knew what was going on. Mm. They they just saw this torso on the lawn and were edging closer towards the sweets. <laughs> You've got and, an evil sense of humour, Mark. Uh, I got in a box once with three sweets written on the front. So when the kids came up, they thought there's no way they wouldn't even think a grown-up would be in this box because it was so small but i was in there and then this year not so scary but i got dressed up as a bottle of john paul gautier the aftershave because <laughs> the bottle was just a torso with no arms and no legs so i got a stripy vest and a sailor's hat tucked my good arm away and just dressed up as a bottle of aftershave <laughs> <laughs> well of all the things i thought i was going to hear today i didn't think i'd hear mark ormred say he dressed as a bottle of aftershave yeah so just to finish up, we talked legacy. So I think I know your answer about what the best bit of advice, what you want to leave with anyone. What would you like to say to people? Just don't underestimate yourself. Mm. You know, have a bit more confidence in yourself, in your abilities, physically and mentally. Do the things that scare you. You know, if you don't think you can run a 5K, you absolutely need to do a 5K because then you surprise yourself mm. and then you understand what you're capable of. And then before you know it, you're doing a marathon, then you're doing an ultra marathon or whatever it is that floats your boat and you start to understand a bit more of your potential. Mm. You know, so it's just have a bit more faith in your abilities in all areas of life, not just talking about physical. You know, it could be mm. business, could be as a partner, could be financially, whatever it is. Just have some more faith. There's so much information out there now that, we, you know, we can educate ourselves with. I'm going to drive to London now. I've got four hours to listen to audiobooks, educate myself, learn something. So yeah, I think just have more faith in yourself and your abilities. Well, Mark, that's great advice. I know you won't take it, but I think you're one of the most incredible human beings I've met. I don't know how you've been so resilient, so positive, all the good you've done out of what was a very awful thing that happened. And it's been a privilege to meet you and thank you for joining us on In Conversation With. Thank you for having me. In Conversation With is supported by Westcott's Chartered Accountants and Business Advisors. Accountants and Business Advisors acting for over 800 farmers across the Southwest. Westcott's, we're here. Produced by Fresh Air Studios, full audio production services for business podcasts and corporate communications. Visit freshairstudios.com. Presented by Stuart Elford. Produced and engineered by Paul Philpot. Edited and mixed by Martin Burgess-Moon. Production support by Lisa Hartwell. Video content by Mark Stevenson. Copyright Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce and Fresh Air Studios Limited. All rights reserved.